It's my honor and privilege to welcome the newest member of the Honky Tonk Time Machine, a four-time ACM winner, four-time CMA winner, and two-time Grammy winner, one of the all-time greats, Kathy Matea is with us tonight. Kathy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. And we're thrilled that you're with us. You're actually our first guest of 2021. It's hard to believe it's been almost a year since the pandemic started. Musicians have had to kind of lay low. What have you been doing to kill your time? Well, it's been interesting because um, I, for 32 years, I lived in an old house in an old neighborhood in Nashville. And they started tearing down, as they are in many neighborhoods, all the houses around us and just putting up these two houses where there was one. And we finally decided we couldn't, we couldn't do We needed to look around. So we bought a house and moved in in early March. So right before the lockdown, we had this big move. So we had all this free time suddenly at home to unpack boxes and kind of get settled in. And then in the middle of the summer, a house that my husband's family's owned in Minnesota at a lake um, also sold after, you know, being on the market for years. So we got in the car, drove up there during the middle of the pandemic, sold everything in that house, cleared it out, and then found a little cabin. And un- we were unexpectedly and bought that and moved into that. So it's been... <laughs> It's been moving. It's like, you know, normally we would be doing this in the, between road trips. And it's been so interesting to just have time to focus on it. Um, the other thing that happened for me is my, my, I had a guitar player for 30 years. Bill Cooley um, has played, been standing next to me on stage since I was 30 years old. And he decided he was going to go off the road. So I spent the summer packing and unpacking boxes, moving, and and learning all of my guitar part. He was like, look, I'm going to teach oh. you everything. <laughs> so I've been having a master class on my own show on the guitar. Um, I always played rhythm, but he played all these fancy parts, and he said, I'll make charts you can play. I know, I know how to do this so you can play it. So <laughs> it's been actually um, a really, it's been, you know, I've used the time, uh, I think it's, you know, it's going to help me feel grounded when we all kind of start up again. Needless to say, you have found something to consume your time during this oh, pandemic. Yeah. So that, that's <laughs> that's good to know. And I know uh, it's been just maybe a couple years since your last album came out, right? Pretty Bird, that was like 2018, 2019? Yeah. Mm-hmm. For folks who haven't picked that one up yet, tell me about that and, and what that project was all about. It's very eclectic. Pretty Bird is an old Hazel Dickens song. Hazel is an Appalachian singer sort of in the folk and bluegrass world who was uh, kind of came to prominence in the 70s. And um, she's like the voice of Appalachia. And I tried and tried for years to sing that song. I've always loved it. And I finally kind of, the light bulb went off. And I was in the shower one night at 11 o'clock at night. And I thought, I started singing and I was like, I think I'm singing this. I think I'm doing this. <laughs> and suddenly, like, I just figured out, like, how I could find my way into it. And that's kind of the way it was for all those songs. Bill and I would sit in my living room once a week and just do just jam on all kinds of songs we've done for years, rethinking songs that we know really well and trying to give take a fresh approach to them. And so I just started pulling out songs, and these are all those songs. And I'd hit, like, a little kind of glitch in my singing where I I felt like my voice I didn't know it anymore. It was changing and I didn't really know how to 
how to work this instrument from this new place. And, uh, and so these are the songs that sort of made the breadcrumb trail across the bridge to, uh, you know, basically um, some of the changes in my voice. And Ode to Billy Joe is on this record, and I, you know, we were just talking about songs one day, and that song came up. And when I hit the low note, I was like, where did that come from? Like, that was never there before. And so it was kind of an exploration. Now, it's interesting how it changes, but, you know, sometimes it can be a good thing, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, and it took me a while to figure that out. It was like, you know, there are certain things about my young voice that I really miss, but there are these other things that have come in that are sort of a, a maturing. And there's some songs on this record. There's a song called Mercy Now that is just a touchstone for me, and I'll sing that song for the rest of my life. It's just, it's just one of the great pieces of music. But I don't think, I don't think I could have sung it in my twenties or even my thirties. I think I didn't understand how to deliver something that poignant from that point of view and just get out of its way. Um, and I didn't think, I don't think I had the gravitas in my voice to be able to do it. So it, that was really, it was really interesting. It's also, it's, you know, it's been interesting to see this big comeback by Tanya Tucker and feel the same thing about her voice. You know, it's yeah. not the same voice it was when she was young, but geez, you know, it's soulful and deep and interesting and got a lot of character. And so I'm trying to like, let go what I have always thought of my voice and just like, be curious about like what it will do. Well, you mentioned Appalachia. Uh, obviously, you have roots there. You grew up in in West Virginia, mm-hmm. cross, cross Lanes, West Virginia. Is that right? Yes, my hometown was named for the stoplight. It was our most prominent feature. We were very <laughs> proud of our stoplight. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> I am from a similar type town, so I, I know the feeling. Um, so, growing up there, what kind of musical influences um, kind of shaped you? Uh, as, as a young artist, because from what I understand about that area is you have all different types of influences coming in. Oh, yeah. You know, I was kind of the anomaly in my family. Like, I was the kind of weird artistic kid that came along as a surprise nine years after they thought they had their last kid. <laughs> so I came out tap dancing, and I had a lot of energy, and I was really curious. And, I, you know, my mom just was like, oh, geez, i got to keep her busy, or she's just going to drive me crazy. So she put me in everything, you know, ice, ice skating and piano lessons and dance class and Girl Scouts and all the things you do as a kid. And, uh, and the things that really stuck had to do with music. And so I just became eaten up with it. So I, and there wasn't a lot of formal, you know, I had some guitar lessons and I had some piano lessons, but there wasn't a whole lot of formal training. So I just tried to find people who cared about music like I did. So that was like, you know, I did band in school and choir and I took piano lessons and I took guitar lessons and I had some other girlfriends and we had a kind of breathy four person girl singing group in junior high and we would sing at assemblies and we figured if we sang breathy enough you couldn't hear any one of our voices so nobody would have to be too exposed (laughs) and then i did community theater and i did um uh you know school i'd jam with my friend's dad's bluegrass band because the chords were easy and you could kind of fall in and it was all about gathering and jamming so i got into college and that's where i found people who really had these big record collections and spent time learning the songs, and I just got into everything from rock and roll to pop to straight country to the Will the Circle Be Unbroken album, and 
you know, just found a world. It was like somebody pulled back a curtain on a world that I knew was there but never had anybody to lead me into. How did you go from college, which I believe you attended West Virginia, um, how yes. did you go from there to, to Nashville, Tennessee? How did that transition take place? Well, I was actually, I was a physics and chemistry major in college, physics and chemistry and engineering, and um, I was the I was a whiz kid when I was young. I skipped the first grade, so I was always kind of the brainiac oh. kid. But I loved music, and I just did everything musical in my spare time. And it was the same when I got into college. And I met up with these guys who all had guitars and banjos and fiddles, and uh, we would jam in all our spare time. And then we started writing songs. And finally, we would sit on the porch of this house and play music on the weekends. And finally, the cops just started coming and blocking off the street because there'd be 200 people in the street by 9 o'clock. And it would be a party. And they finally just came to us and said, will you just name yourselves, call yourselves a band, and move into one of the bars because that's what they're there for. We don't want anyone to get hit by a car just listening to music. That's kind of how we formed our band, and we started right. The football team was terrible, so we would stay home from the football games and write songs and then play them for all our friends that night. And so uh, it kind of happened organically. And after my second year in college, um, there were two of us that had been doing most of the songwriting, and my friend was graduating. And he said, you know, I'm going to go to Nashville, and I'm going to be a songwriter because it's been a dream of mine for a long time. And he made all the plans to go, and he found a, you know, got the lay of the land, came to Nashville and discovered Music Row and came back talking about it. And he looked at me one day and he said, you know, you're welcome to come with me if you want. And I thought, if, it took me a while to realize I was going to do this. I thought if he goes to Nashville and he has this great life and I get a degree and I get some straight job, for the rest of my life I will wonder what would have happened had I gone. And so I called my parents one day and said, Mom, Dad, thanks so much. College has just been great. But I think I'm going to quit now and move to Nashville with a boy and be a songwriter. I'm so excited. <laughs> It was not exactly a stellar day in our household. I bet. <laughs> <laughs> so you get to Nashville, and it, it probably took a, a little while. I, I understand you actually worked as a tour guide at the Country Music Hall of Fame, which I would think maybe had an impact on you uh, as an artist as well. Oh, yeah. You know, um, I was too young to be a waitress. Oh. Because I was 19 when I moved, and you had to be 21 to serve alcohol to someone okay. else yeah. in Tennessee. So I got this job as a tour guide. Most of the other tour guides were college students. And I got a crash course in the history of country music. So I learned about the Bristol Sessions, and I learned about the Carter family, and I listened to you know, song records that were sounded old-fashioned and dated to me when I was in college and high school. There was this moment where listening to them all day, every day, this light bulb went on. And I was like, my God, this is the most soulful stuff I've ever heard. And I, I would go on my lunch hour, and we had this film in this little theater of Jimmy Rogers and Gene Autry, and I discovered Bob Wills and Western Swing. And just it, my mind exploded, and I just, you know, I just suddenly, you know, found a whole deeper understanding of the nuances of country music and so um yeah it was a it was an incredible way to acclimate to nashville and 
to this music that I, I had kind of moved in to, to sort of explore. Now, eventually you would be discovered, and to my knowledge, it was Byron Hill, who, <laughs> who I guess, quote-unquote, discovered you, who is also a big name in music. But what I don't know is how that happened. Um, how did you kind of run into Byron, and how did that work out? Well, it's very interesting. After um, about a year at the Hall of Fame, I started to lose my voice from giving tours all day, and I thought, i got to find something else. So I got a job as a secretary, and I, um, I had somebody had heard my tape, a producer, and he said, she needs to know her instrument better. She needs to learn more about how to sing. And he suggested a voice teacher. So I woodshedded for like a year. And I, I got a job as a secretary, and I would take these voice lessons, and I would practice every day when I got home from work, and then I'd go out and hear music at night and play writer's nights and um, get to know you know other musicians. And this was like I ate, slept, and breathed music for a solid year. My partner had long since moved back to decided music wasn't for him. He's now a dentist in Richmond, Virginia. Huh. And... I'm living the dream, you know. So I, I, I did all that, and, and after a year, I had a demo tape I thought was pretty good. So I got a job waiting tables so that my schedule could be flexible, and I started taking my tape around. And songwriters start, and publishers started, um, they started, word of mouth started spreading, and people learned that I was a good demo singer. And so if you are pitching your songs to artists, and you are a male writer and you want to pitch to a female artist, it's to your advantage to have a female voice on your demo. So I got lots of studio work doing that, and that meant that all those songs that were being pitched to record labels got, my voice got heard by all these people. And so there was this moment when I got a call from a saying, I've been singing demos for a lot of people, and we're looking for somebody. Would you come and see me? I was like, sure. And I came walking in. And uh, he comes out of his office as I walk into the lobby, and we both stopped in our tracks, and he said, it's you. I said, it's you. And I had waited on this guy once a week for years at TGI Fridays. Oh. And he, when he got his first number one, he and his co-writer came in, and I, went, I wound up waiting on them for their celebratory lunch, and I kind of knew him. He said, you didn't tell me you could sing. I said, God, I wore a record in my hair like a hat. If you couldn't figure out that I wanted to be a singer, I said, besides, it's Nashville. Every waitress wants to be a singer. <laughs> so we became good friends. And after a while, he looked at me and said, do you, are, are, you know, is your dream to have a record deal or what? And I was like, well, yeah, but I figure somebody else needs to tell me that. And he said, I'll help you. I will help you. I will wow. take you around. And you kind of had to have somebody. In those days, you kind of had to have somebody stand up for you in the community. And so he did. He made all these appointments with these record companies, and that's how I got my record deal. Your first two albums, really fine pieces of work. I, I discovered these after the fact. So I didn't want to skim over the first two albums, but for, for the sake of time, I did want to start with, with your breakthrough album, and Walk the Way the Wind Blows, which produced yeah. four huge singles for you, including the breakthrough single in Love at the Five and Dime. Um, what can you tell us about recording that album and then the feeling of getting your first real taste of success there? Well, here's the thing that they don't tell you. Or at least it was true for me. I never really felt like I made it. 
like my perception was about five years behind where I actually was. (laughs) I mean, you never, it's the music business, so you never are like, I mean, you kind of start riding the, the surfing the wave, you know, but it's, and it's this big adventure and you can't get away from it to have any perspective on it. So you just try to keep people around you to keep you grounded. Um, I had been, my first album, I was floundering for a couple albums because I knew how to be a singer, but I was the singer you called if you had a, a session with a rock and roll song and a country song and a pop song and a folky sounding song. And I could deliver all those things in a, in a way that was honest enough that people felt like it, it was, I was prided myself on my diversity. So they're like, okay, well now, you know, you're an artist, so what's your, what do you want, what's your voice? And it took me a little while to find that. And luckily my record company really believed in me and they sort of stuck with me during that time. And um, I had been working with Alan Reynolds, who's kind of a legendary producer, now best yeah. known for working with Garth Brooks. And we made our first record together, which was my second album. And um, we had some minor success and we got some attention. And then the third album was where uh, Love at the Five and Dime happened. And it, we began to see what people were were responding to, which was a, a kind of a, an acoustic bass sound. And that was where my voice sort of found its home. A lot of story songs, Love at the Five and Dime, is like an epic movie in three and a half minutes. He would just look at me and say, Kathy, if you find a great song and you sing it honestly and you frame it well, it will be timeless. So don't go for fads. Don't try to go for the hot songwriters. Just stay centered in the song and you will always find your way. And it was like, you know, being 20, 24, 25 years old and having somebody point your compass. And um, I just was very, very lucky that I got to work with him for so long. Well, the compass was pointed in the right direction because that album started a streak of 15 top 10 singles in a row and catapulted you onto your next album, Untasted Honey. That's my personal favorite of yours because it features my favorite song and 18 wheels and a dozen roses. I can't let this interview go by without asking you about that song, how you came to record it, and what you thought about it when you first heard it. I found that song because I had been working with publishers around Nashville. You know, I started singing demos for them, so I knew them all. So when I got a record deal, I already had a relationship with them. And there was a guy named Pat Higdon who worked at one of the big publishing companies, really great guy, great song guy. And I was sitting with him one day, and he said, you know, I'm sending to all the record labels just compilation tapes from all my writers, like eight, eight or ten songs from each writer. I said, put me on that mailing list. So one day a cassette comes in my mailbox, and I listen to it. And 18 Wheels was the third song on this. I'll never forget it. It was the third song on the, on the tape, and I thought, this is really special. And so Alan Reynolds and I were going to sit and listen to songs, and I said, I gotta play you these I gotta play you this tape of these guys. And it was two brothers who wrote together, Paul Nelson and Gene Nelson. And this song came up and I said, Okay, this is my favorite one coming up. You gotta hear this one all the way through. And we listened and he said, That's great, pal. He always called everybody pal. <laughs> that's one of Alan's trademarks. He said, That's great, pal. I said, Yeah, isn't it a great song? Who do you think should do that song? <laughs> who would you send that song to? And he said, You. <laughs> uh- <laughs> and I realized that because it was a trucking song, I just kind of didn't think about it for me. 
But it was actually a love song is what it's about. It's about a great lifelong love. And I just was, I just, it was just one of those things where it was just a blind spot. And um, so it's, it was a great feeling to feel like there's one of those songs that like, you know, you, you, you know, you're on the right track when you think, Oh, wait till they hear this. Oh, I can't wait for you to hear this. You know, it's like, you're just eaten up by it. And, um, so, you know, it was, it was really fun, fun to record, fun to put out. And, you know, it's just a song that has become like an old, like one of my old favorite pair of blue jeans. Like it's, I know they fit me really well and I, I feel great in them and I, you know, I can still wear them and they still fit. And it's, you know, it's like a companion really. As someone said to me one time, yeah, some of my songs have become my longest-term relationships in my life. <laughs> and this is one – I've been singing this song since I was like 20, 20, 28 years old or something. I don't know if the song would have carried the same weight if a, if a man sung it. Um, it. It probably would have still been a hit, but I don't know if it would have been as iconic uh, coming from from a male artist at the time. I just feel like you were destined to record that song. Yeah, I, I kind of do too. And, the, and you know that there's a magic thing that happens when – you know, those records that um, kind of stand out over a long period of time happen. It's like when you hear them, you're like, oh, wait, this song couldn't be any other way. There's no, it would not live any other way except this. And, you know, I feel that way when I hear my own recording of that song. I feel that way about a lot of Vince Gill's songs or, you know, or, or Dolly Parton. It's like Jolene, you know, it's like, not that my song is like, but, but, you know, you, you think that, and a lot of people have covered Jolene, but you hear Dolly sing it and you're like, well, it's just perfect. There's just nothing you would change. And so every once in a while you just get lucky and it's a good fit for your voice. And, you know, all the stars line up for a minute and you, and you get to take a ride. And uh, it's just a delight to have a song like that, that everybody heard coming out of their radio and sang along with. And then you get to sing it for them live and celebrate you know, how it's marked all of our lives. It's just, it's just, it's a real privilege to find something like that. Well, it was a big number one hit, but um, I actually skipped over uh, what I think was your first number one. I, I hesitate to say because different charts give different numbers, but at least according to Billboard, Going Gone was your first yeah. uh, number one hit. Yeah. Um, how did it feel to, to get that one? Oh, gosh. You know, you, the thing that happens to you is you get a hit and then you're like, oh, that's great. I wonder if I'll have another hit. If I'll just be a one-hit wonder. And then you have another hit, and you're like, okay. I wonder if I'll be one of those people that has a few hits and then goes away, or am I going to get to do this for a while? And then you, you think, well, you know, I don't want to have a number one as my goal, but, you know, it is sort of a marker that maybe I'm going to get to stay for a while. And so then if that happens, there's this part of you that relaxes because the question goes away. And um, that's another song I still sing every night. Pat Alger uh, wrote that with Fred Kohler, and Pat is still – Pat has Thanksgiving dinner at our house every year, and we're still really good friends. And um, he's just a brilliant songwriter. And it's just, you know, to me, it's like one of those perfect love songs. And, um, and it's interesting, you know, to live with these songs for a long time. We just kind of uh, – uh, in this summer of – kind of rethinking my whole show, just added a whole new introduction to it, a musical, little musical interlude. And so all of a sudden, this song that I've been singing for a really long time, I cannot wait to get back on the road and surprise people with, you know, 
something they think they know, but has like a new element to it. To it, that's really fun too. Now you probably don't have time for me to ask you about all of your biggest hits. So let me <laughs> let me ask you this: Do you have a favorite song that you perform? I think that's it's really a tough question because if you choose your songs well, you love them all in different ways for different reasons. Sort of like kids, you know. But I mean, like you can't say, well, "What's your favorite kid?" Well, you know, they're all so interesting. <laughs> so. I would say there was this moment where I had been doing this long enough. I was standing on stage one night and I realized, oh my God, Alan Reynolds was right. Like he steered me to try to listen for something special in the songs. And now I have this body of work that I'm, I don't dread singing. There's something to every song and every song, like there was this moment one night I was on stage and I was singing love at the five and dime, which I've done so long. But the second verse came around, and I thought, oh, my God. Oh, my God, this is amazing. Like, just words like, you know, oh, but he was back by June singing a different tune and sporting Miss Rita back by his side. I'm like, <laughs> okay, Nancy Griffith's a genius. And I, I thought so before, but now I see it in a whole different way. And I think, or, or like, where have you been? You know, my husband and, and Don Henry wrote that song about my husband's grandma, but then my mom got Alzheimer's. So when my mom got Alzheimer's, the singing of that song took on a whole different meaning. And so, oh, and and then so many people came and told me personal stories about their own journey with their parents or their, you know, their uncle and aunt or their grandparents that I began to think of those songs when I sang that. And And so if you choose your songs well, they keep they keep living in in new ways. They stand the test of time, and I just feel really lucky to have had, you know had that experience. It's like these are all really good friends. And I I thought you may bring up where have you been because I mean obviously a, a Grammy winning song and just uh, such an emotional ride that that one takes you on. Plus your husband co wrote the song, and then I noticed a lot of your releases after that your husband co-wrote or wrote on as well. So maybe you found a formula that worked there. Well, he had been writing hit songs for people, but we were really afraid to step in too much to each other's orbit because we didn't want to um, kind of lean our careers on each other. And it was just, it was just kind of too easy and I decided if I I wasn't going to do a song of his unless I was really sure, unless I felt, I mean, he kind of had a higher bar than anybody else with me. And so I knew that song was special. And and that was the first song of his I recorded. And I think that sort of broke the barrier. And I, I was, you know, a little more, um, a little more maybe open to his stuff afterwards. Um, but we still have kept our careers kind of the center of gravity is separate so that we, we didn't sort of, we, I think I, we were just sort of afraid of getting too caught up in like, I think sometimes you make musical decisions because of financial stuff. And we just didn't want to do that. We really wanted to stand on our own merits, both of us. Who do you hear from more families who have truck drivers or families who have been touched by Alzheimer's? Those are two signature songs of yours. No, really both. To be honest, um, you know, in, it, 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 I love it that people who come to see me, 
It's not like they just want to have their picture made with me to show their friends. They want to come tell me some story about their life and about the way a song has touched their life. And that's a human connection. And that is something that, you know, keeps me going. That's what keeps me packing my suitcase these days, you know, and getting on planes and trains and automobiles and buses to, to go sing because that connection is just, it's the back door, you know. It's a very deep connection with people I don't even know. And um, so it's, it's, there have been a lot of poignant stories over the years and people I've gotten to know well because of that stuff. And um, it's, it's, you know, like I said, it's a privilege. Well, Kathy, as we kind of wrap up our chat with you, I did want to get an idea as well of some other artists from, from your same era, like late eighties, early nineties artists that may have been at their peak at that time that, that you really enjoyed listening to then and, and, and still do to this day. Well, Mary Chapin Carpenter, you know, she's just, her voice is so honest and her writing's so good. And Vince Gill, you know, is always a buddy. And we were like the two people kicking around Nashville who couldn't get a hit for a long time. And then I, I kind of broke through first and then he just went into the stratosphere. And so it's always a pleasure to, to see him. I think Trisha Yearwood has like a really freaking great singing voice and a really good taste in song. And then there's like, People like Nancy Griffith and Steve Earle and Lyle Lovett, who were being played on the radio those days, quirky songwriters with interesting voices who were, you know, coming at things from a different angle and was so fresh. I, you know, there was this, this moment that I was talking to somebody, maybe we were sitting around on the bus one night, and I just realized it was a really special time. The doors kind of flung wide open, and um, really interesting, diverse music was being done in the in the late 80s and early 90s and people were welcomed with open arms and it, it felt like a kind of a golden era in country music. Steve Earle calls it the great credibility scare of the late 80s because <laughs> he's <laughs> like that, you know, he's kind of edgy, but um, he was also a friend. I used to sing demos for him and uh, it was just a sweet time to come up and uh, I feel like we all got to be part of something really special and a lot of us, Susie Boggess is a good friend and I still, you know, marvel at just, she's the voice of an angel. I mean, she's just still, she'll, we'll be at some party or some jam session or something and she'll just start singing. I'll be like, I just can't even stand sitting in a room listening to you. You're just so, it's so beautiful. I just feel lucky to have been around for those years. So much great music was made uh, at that time, and you were a huge part of it, Kathy. Uh, I really appreciate your time. I also wanted to say that I really enjoyed seeing you on that uh, uh, Bluebird special. I think CMT put it out last year. Oh, yeah. Thank you. That was really cool to see you as part of that and kind of hear hear about the Bluebird Cafe. So Yeah, it was nice to see that get, get documented, you know, and, you know, all the way up to what's going on there now. Uh, you know, kind of how it's evolved. It was really, it was fun for all of us. And it was fun to go to the premiere because those of us who started the Bluebird got to interact with people who are like, you know, the the hot writers now. And it was, it was a very sweet thing. Really, really cool. Kathy Matea, our guest tonight in the Honky Tonk Time Machine. Thank you so much for spending some time with us. This has been absolutely awesome. My pleasure. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.